0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: Hey, Oak Podcast, episode 52 with me, Dan, the fitness man, bringing on a new guest today. Super stoked about that. But first, let me diverge into a little topic called, hey, welcome to 2019. New year, new you, yeah, right Been there, done that, seen that. No one ever follows through. So I'm a little bit of a hater when it comes to New Year's resolutions. Seeing more people fail than succeed. So if you want a different outcome in 2018, you're going to have to do something different. You can't do the same thing, expect a different outcome. You know that. So whatever it is that you're lining up for 2019, whether it be relational, financial, fiscal, career-wise, family, spouse, hunting goals, whatever it is. Figure out what the big why is behind it all. You better, when the when it gets tough and when being lazy or quitting is easy, you're going to have to stop in your tracks and you better have your answer as to why the heck am I waking up at 4 a.m. every day. Why the heck am I shooting my bow daily? Why the heck am I stashing cash and envelopes for this hunt that's not even four or five years away? You know what I'm saying? So you better know your why behind everything that you're doing. Figure out the big goals and then work your way backwards on the small goals. That is going to help you in 2019. Advertise. Broadcast those goals. So you're going to be able to see them. Your friends and family know what they are as well. And you're going to let people down if you don't hit them. That's what I'm talking about. And so anyways, let's get into this episode. Bringing on a guy today who's got a super awesome story about his life, how he got to America, how he's become quite the elk hunter. Although he doesn't come out and say it, guys, this guy's killed a ton of 300 plus inch bulls on public land without the guides Without the ranch tag, without the landowner tag or the trespass feed, the dude's doing it on ground that you and I own, and he's doing it consistently with his brothers, and he's out of Missoula, Montana, and I've been wanting to get him on here for a long time. Finally got him nailed down, so this guy is going to drop some knowledge bombs. Super pumped to have him. If you've never listened to Oak Shade Podcast, we are all about the blue-collar family man, do-it-yourself dudes that... We don't have time for intro music and fluff. We only have time to get this good information out and get back to work. Nose to the grindstone. Those are my kind of people. This podcast saw a lot of success in 2018. Actually, pretty humbled and overwhelmed that there are some people out here that dig what we're talking about. But my goal every podcast is to drop the information to keep you motivated and hungry to work hard because you're only going to work hard for anything that you earn period and elk hunting is no different we never looking for a low road we're always looking for a high road and that's what we're all about that's our business so if you want to support this podcast simple keep checking the elk shape website my workouts are posted for free under training i put the podcast there i put it on podbean stitcher itunes and then i also have all my sponsors their equipment their links check them out that's top quality stuff that i handpicked And then you can always check out the shop. We're constantly working on new swag, hats, tees, and workout programs. Now, 2019, I hope that it is going to be a successful one. I hope that you take some risks. I hope that some of them are even a little bit scary. But I hope you come out the other side the best version of yourself. I truly, truly appreciate everybody who downloads and listens. And I can't thank you enough. Your support means the world to me. If you have any questions that you want answered on this podcast, hit me up at Elkshape at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at Dan the Fitness man. You can check out the YouTube channel and all the other little things we got going on. Without further ado, Bur Yang, and he is from Pure Trophies, and we are talking public ground giants. Here we go. Elk Shay Podcast, episode 52 with me, Dan the Fitness Man. Today I am pumped. I'm bringing on a guy that I don't know but I kind of know. He's from Missoula, Montana, or at least that's where he lives now, I think. Here's what I know about him. The dude gets it done year after year in Idaho and in Montana. He is a trophy elk hunter on public land. I don't know how to describe it anywhere else. He gets it done on big bulls shoots way bigger bulls than I do, and he's got a great eye for capturing it on film. He's got a daughter, I believe, and he's a hard-working dude. That's what I know about him. So without further ado, Bear, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Right on. How do you say your full name? Uh, Bird like cold. Bird Yang. Burr Yang. Got it. So I already butchered it. Good job. Uh, Man... (laughs) Thanks for coming on. I am pumped to have you. I know very little about you, but what I do know is that you're the perfect guy to have on this podcast. So, um uh, happy new year and let's get into it.
2: Yeah, thank
1: you. All right, man. So, tell us about yourself and your background, where you came from, where you live in, what you do for work. Like, give us as much. Paint the story of what's going on in your world.
2: Okay, definitely. Uh So... You know, everybody thinks I'm mean, I, I was born in America, but I was actually born in Laos. Uh, we came here through a little program called from Salvation Army uh, back in the day when we were part of the secret war in Laos. And after the war, uh, it's, it's a communist country, so. My parents escaped to Thailand, and from Thailand we had some family that came over here before, early in the 70s, and they kind of helped us sponsor, and they came to Missoula right away, and then we just kind of stayed off here, and the mountains seemed similar, and the games were there, the hunting was there, so it felt like home in here. We just adapt to it, and graduated from the University of Montana here, um, you know, and start a family here, and I graduated with a computer, I guess you could say, business information systems, and been doing IT since I graduated, so that's what I've been doing, just watching kids for now, but i got to get back into making some money so I can get some gas to go hunting again.
1: (laughs) Wow, you covered a lot right there. We can't skip over some of that, man. So how old were you when you guys finally made it to the States?
2: Uh, I was seven years old. We got here right on um, pretty much Christmas Day,
0: nineteen
1: ninety. Wow. Do you have a lot of memories before that, like going through all those hardships and bouncing around and escaping a war in a communist country?
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was it was a long journey. My uh, parents have tells to keep a mouth shut, don't yell, don't cry, don't make any noises. And so I'm, I was pretty used to it because my parents took us hunting when we were young. So just like, you got to be quiet, you know, animals coming in. So he kind of like triggers, us, you know, like just be quiet, you no know, animals can hear you. Just, we're going to go through this journey and <laughs> you know, be careful because if you get caught, something can happen to us or, you know, bad guys could shoot us. So we just kind of went through the journey together and crossed the river all the way to Thailand.
1: Wow. So at age seven, Christmas Day, you arrived to the states, and you said, "I think you said Montana was where you guys ended up. How'd you get there? Why Montana?"
2: Well, Missoula was the first place where uh, one of the smoke jumpers uh, from Missoula, his name's Jerry something. I'm not sure what his name was, but uh, he was one to help uh, the Mong's in Laos fight the war, and so we, our job was to rescue pilots that crash into the mountains and hide them from the. Vietnamese and the communists so he was part of that and when the war was over he wanted to help people and come to Missoula and Missoula was the first location that brought all the monks here
1: so that was the landing spot okay what did your folks do with like okay they're here in America they probably just don't hand out jobs like how did your parents get by how many brothers and sisters you got I'm super fascinated by this yeah, so my my parents didn't have anything coming through here. Uh, we had to it's the, the government is pretty
2: much corrupt over there too. So you had to get money for them to even give us permission to come over to America. And my dad had to uh, you know borrow a whole bunch of money from different people and uh, cousins from that already here in America, part of the first wave. That didn't require anything, you know. So send a lot of money back, and we we move here, and that's what it was. <laughs> We stay here since then.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Learning English, I mean, you probably you probably started just at a tender age and like how was that? Learning a whole new language, coming to a brand new country, and of all states, Montana. I mean, I think your parents picked a good one in my hunting opinion, but how was that thrown into a whole new world? Well, when I first came here, I mean I, I knew I was bilingual already. Not really? not
2: English Yeah, not English, but uh, I was learning because where we're from, there's a whole bunch of different ethnics there. We have to learn different languages to get along with every different group of people, so you can communicate back and forth. When I came here, I knew like a little bit of Mong, uh, Thai, Laos, and a little bit of Chinese. But uh, you know, you don't use it, you lose it, and so you have to start learning English. And like, with the six months, I start speaking fluent English and I made friends with one of the American kids here.
1: Well, that's pretty incredible, man. And uh, you probably you got your hunting skills from your parents and your work ethic. What did they? I mean, what do you feel like your parents taught you the best out of anything?
2: Well, my parents. You know, when we came here, they didn't have any jobs. My only thing was uh, lucky. My uncle was here, part of the first wave. He was part of with the general that allowed them to have jobs from government here, selling parachutes. And so my parents got here because the uncle and them help my parents come to Missoula. And so he had a little shop here. Um, so my parents kinda helped him make some pair of shoes and make a little bit of money just so we had some food for clothing for all of us. Uh, all of I guess four brothers and then five including me for Rand and then one sister. So six of us total. And well, we just live where where we can. So we understand we came from a third world country. So it wasn't, like, expecting, like, a lot of things from us, you know. We had walking the streets with just no clothes, not even underwear, nothing. So we're used to, like, not having anything. Yeah. So, so we know we didn't have to ask the parents or anything. We're just, like, whatever provides us, we're good. Uh, we were fortunate Salvation Army. Gave us some uh, extra clothes that uh, we needed for winter, and so we're thankful for that. You know, That's badass. Well, how many brothers and sisters were with you? All of us came in. There's this five of us boys total, and then I'm the third oldest, and I was sister that's youngest.
1: And so you stayed in Montana. You did your, your school, your undergrad. Pretty cool backstory, man. Not going to lie to you. That's awesome. Anybody who comes from humble beginnings, I feel like that's almost a blessing in disguise. You're going to work hard for everything you get. You're going to know that you have to earn it and you're not going to feel sorry for yourself like a lot of people in society today. And I'm allergic to people that feel sorry for themselves, man. I think being accountable, pretty cool story. But let's fast forward to when did you get a bow in your hand? Well, you know, (laughs) uh, when I was probably 14, eighth grade
2: um I, every summer we always go like pick huckleberries. you know like, western montana idaho you always have the huckleberry, so you make a little extra cash there in the summertime um so my parents didn't have high-paying jobs coming here they can't speak english so that's the only way you can get make income and um my friends i was talking about elk hunting in school one day because i've always see his friend i mean my friend his dad always getting elk all the time all right Right before rifle season. And my parents, my dad didn't know much about the way of it. So he always took me during rifle hunting. It's kind of hard because you got orange shirts everywhere. And so they either shot it before or scared the elk off already and never do anything. So yeah. I'm like, you know, how can these people always get an elk before we get out there? If we got a gun, it should be easier. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm just going to do some more research and then start asking questions. And then when I did that, I started then like, oh yeah, the rut hits in September, you know. Rifle starts in October. That's make a big difference. I better uh, get into bow hunting if I want to get elk. And so I uh, called in, signed up for some classes, and got my permit, and you know got my brothers into it. And you know after we heard the elk bugle for the first time, we just like, there's no more rifle season friends. It's like
1: <laughs> game over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. a very common thread amongst a lot of us bow hunters for elk. Is you hear that first view, it's game over, man. So yeah. you got your permits or whatever. That's pretty cool. So you got a bow right away, or did you have to kind of like work for one oh, yeah. and save up? Yeah,
2: did, like the summer times, you know, we make quite a few d- dollars here, uh doing Huckleberry. So I save up everything that I could during the summer, and uh, I bought a, the bow right before hunting season started. Um, so I, I was given a, a chance to like, shoot a, a couple weeks before, and so we didn't have any targets or anything, but back then, they, nobody hunted bulls, so they had like a, a little hay field where you can just go shoot the hay, and bring a little paper out there and draw a little circle with a marker and just shoot it out there and practice and practice until you're ready and then confident and start to buy your own bow at the time too. So because we, I guess, it's like a little uh, addiction. Once you see somebody have it in your family, you, like, I want one too. You know, so
1: <laughs> you all buy our own bow right away. That's cool, man. So it's you hate. guys don't have any real mentorship. You're just learning on your own. You're just making it happen. I gotta circle back. A lot of people listening to this don't even know about huckleberries, and I think. I have never done the research, but I don't think there's a lot of huckleberries across the US. I think they're just kind of in some certain specific areas, the Cascades and Urani's neck of the woods. So we gotta talk about huckleberries, man. Uh first off, huckleberry patches are to give hunters a kind of an idea, is huckleberry patches are top secret, like your top hunting spots. You don't give away your number one place to go pick huckleberries, right? Number two, huckleberries are just a smaller than a blueberry, but they're 10 times better than a blueberry. And you can just do about, I mean, I think almost everybody's had to have had at least huckleberry ice cream at some point. But I mean, the stuff sell, you sell it by the gallon. At least that's what I see it being sold for. And to put things into perspective, last year I picked all day with my wife. Now I had two kids, so budget that in there of, kind of a circus but between her and i we got maybe a gallon picking all day and that's that's all we did for the year so what were you guys picking in a huckleberry season how many gallons a day or or at the end of the season what were you selling it for just so people have an idea how hard work that is
2: it it is a lot of hard work you usually wake up early in the morning you know go hike go camp there you wake up early in the morning about six seven right before the sun rises and then you start picking and get lunch break, and then you go back and then pick again until almost dark and then come back and cook. But uh, it's a lot of work. You just sit there hoping you find a good batch. If not, you just got to go through some thick country and hopefully you find more berries. And you just keep hiking around the hill over and over until you find a good one. yeah It's not easy work. Um, you pick them up usually throughout the day. Depending on the good year, a lot of moisture, a lot of water in the mountains. You can get up about up to a few buckets of it, um, and then sell them in the market for a pretty good price. Um, right now, last year, it's pretty good about fifty dollars a pound, or fifty dollars a gallon actually. And then you can make quite a few if you just spend our time in the woods and just hike around. And so that's pretty good money for some people, just for extra gas money or buy some new archery equipment and helps them out for the uh, uh, coming hunting season yeah
1: oh yeah for sure well you're picking huckleberries right in primo elk country so I gotta imagine through all your days growing up picking huckleberries in July you had to stumble across some rubs some good elk sign and you probably have a couple bear stories what do you got for us
2: oh yeah definitely you're out there all the time uh, you're gonna see predators sooner or later or prey so when I'm out there I'm always scouting you know either i'm walking through some nice country i'm like oh man this is a good spot i'm gonna have to get back in here and check it out you know uh maybe not like whole season but maybe come here during the rut when bulls are in here and make sure that they're actually in here because elk move around all the time so you gotta have the highest chance if you don't have trail cams or something to keep track of it the best chance is to come during the rut and bugle around and see if they're actually there and just kind of take the route but uh yeah, you, you see a lot of bears and grizzlies and bears, uh, black bears, mountain lions, all over, but they don't bother me. I, I guess I'm not afraid of them. I'm used to it.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, no doubt. Well, huckleberries are awesome. That's a cool way to earn some income. They are a delicacy around here. Everybody, even though they're, there's just a lot of competition in the easy to get to areas, but just like elk hunting, if you can get yourself away from people, you can find those patches and Oh, uh, we look forward to picking huckleberries every year, and I just know for a fact huckleberries aren't prevalent across the U.S. So, will get us into your elk hunting learning curve, if you will, kind of give us the ups and downs of how you learned through the school of hard knocks how to elk hunt.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, when we first started; it was all pretty much trial and error. Uh, there wasn't a lot of videos that we can watch, and if they did, it was only had like one, which is like a high fence hunting, and it wasn't like. You know, the ideal situation you can put yourself into. So, uh, after we got the ball and we heard the elk, all my brothers and us, we just went out there every day. Pretty much sometimes we we'll skip school or in after school, we just go. I mean, at the time when we started in '98, there was nobody in the woods. Um, we were pretty much the only ones that were chasing the elk. And so, anywhere, uh, any mountain you went to, you can bugle and you pretty much guarantee a response. And so, I mean, the first two years, it was all experimenting and understanding the language, practicing your calls, hiking, uh, exploring the woods, and just kind of know where they're hiding in the environment and all that little stuff. And that's all it is. We just kind of go out there and just kind of explore, you know. So, uh, me and my brother... I could be experiencing a mistake and I can come back and tell to my brother and then he'll, he'll understand that. Or if he goes and makes another mistake, he'll come back and we'll share stories and kind of like uh, share the information to each other. And that's how we become better at it and then just kind of you know, improve upon it.
1: Okay, well, who was the first one to pick up a bugle and sound respectable? <laughs>
2: it's it, like, it kind of weird because uh, actually I was the first one to do it. And then I was like, everybody's like, oh, that sounds pretty good. And then, uh, we didn't really know what it sounded like. We just kind of like bugle, kind of empty, whatever the, uh, elk sounded on TV, uh, and on the videos that we rent from, like Blockbuster or something back in the day. And then just kind of watch over and over and just kind of pra- practice it. And then just, uh, you know, trial and error, you know, sometimes when I mean, we first started, it was horrible, but, uh, you know, when you're out there in the woods more often, you're starting to like listen to it and like um, just kind of imitate the elk. And then finally, you start to realize that's what they want to hear and certain tones and certain uh, behavior of the sounds that you want to attract them in. So you're starting to just throw all the bad sounds out and it's focus on one or well, a couple of specific sounds.
1: Right on. Well, I've been doing a little bit of research on you. I've watched a couple of your recent YouTube videos. I know there's a bunch. We'll get into that, I promise. But I was doing my research on you, man. I was trying to figure out like what questions to ask you. And so if I could summarize your guys' style, and this is just this is just Dan picking you guys apart because, you know, I just watch what you guys were doing or at least what you captured on film is you guys are ultra, ultra mobile and aggressive. There's no slow playing. You guys are bugling off ridges into these hell holes of North Idaho and Western Montana. And you're trying to get a bull to answer and you're trying to get the right bull to answer and then it's go time. You guys dive off any hole. Looks like you'll go anywhere if the bull sounds right. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. There's no stopping us, you know. (laughs) Doesn't matter how deep the canyon is. Doesn't matter how bad it is. If the the bull that we're... I've located it down there. We're gonna go down way get down there somehow. Um, we can regret later, you know.
1: Yeah, now I can't tell for sure. You'll have to correct me on this. It looks like you guys hunt in kind of a, a wolf pack, so to speak. So it looks like you guys got one shooter, cameraman, and possibly anywhere between one and three callers, but there's definitely only one shooter that I saw, which is kind of cool. It's like, okay, no, you're our sole focus. We're gonna get this on film we're going to have plenty of guys here to help sound good. And then when we get something killed, we're going to get this thing out between the four to five of us. Is that right?
2: That is correct. Yeah. So we have one shooter. So that way he, there's no uh, errors out there. Uh, Anything that's mistakes, that's up to him, you know? So we don't have two shooters where one's going to think like somebody's going to go closer or doesn't have a good angle or or the brush is brushing him and it's moving around, making noises. So just going to, Isolate that. And just keep it to one hunter, and so we know that all the people that are behind the sh- uh, shooter is making all the things happen. Um, we can direct where the bow is going to go. We can make all the noise in the background. If one person in the back has got a bow just in case uh, some something decides to sneak behind us and you know get that spook us or scare us or surprise us somehow. So so just one shooter, but one person brings a bow just in case, and then you know, the rest of us can just. Big or film.
1: It seems like a pretty legit system, honestly. Now, how many guys are there? Is it four to five, or is it more or less? What are you thinking?
2: Usually uh, just four or five of us brothers, but depending on the location, if you know there's a lot of bulls, then we split up. If there's like a couple bulls, then we just go together. And depending on the, lo- in the morning we we'll locate. be located, like, say, for instance, there's five bulls in a canyon, and there's like a couple of big bulls, they will split up times. It'll be like, to two, the more the person who wants to hike a little bit more or chase L, and those two can go together. And then three of us will try to uh, work it slowly like go aggressive towards them, but not too aggressive and just kind of trying to film it too. And if it doesn't work that way, and the bulls are not coming in, let's say for instance, you just call in, he's not, he's only staying like 100 yards and not coming in. And so, uh, what we usually do is you no, know, let the caller stay behind, and the other shooter. He's going to sneak right in front of the bull, right? He's going to go just quietly and get in front of the bull about 150, 20 yards in front of it. And then the hunters are from behind bugling, just kind of slowly move towards it so that the bull doesn't know what's going on. And then hoping that the bull will go and directly to the other hunter and he can just shoot it.
1: And that's just uh, basically understanding the elk bull behavior that they're going to possibly circle wide, try to get eyes on the caller, try to get a visual or get some smell, and then you put your hunter in place. Plus, the distraction is also enabling your hunter. Because you guys are hunting brush country. I think you hunt similar country that I do, where it's just like, it's top pen country, man. You're not gonna get a 40, 50, 60 yard shot on a bull. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Yeah, you're not gonna. We have bulls that come in 20, 10 yards. Sometimes you can't even get a shot. So, yeah. <laughs> five yards, sometimes you're lucky to get a shot. So, yeah,
1: yeah. It's tough country for sure. Well, man, I got lots of questions for you. So watching your videos, I don't know if this paints a good picture of your hunting history. It looks like all of you, and you're going to have to articulate and really explain this to me because I'm very curious. So it looks like all five of you are extremely disciplined, and I don't know what school you guys went to, but it's like maybe you're hunting the same areas and you got a trophy management program that you need to tell me about, but it seems like everybody is calling in you guys have called in some really nice borderline 300 inch bulls and there there's like no the boat doesn't get pulled back and then it seems like you guys always know that there's always going to be just one other bigger herd bull because you guys call in the satellites first almost a lot of your videos and the discipline is awesome the shots they're, they're not they're there but you guys aren't taking them and then these Eventually, a giant shows up, and you guys are literally putting bulls on the ground, public ground, that are 300-plus, we'll say. Some bulls look like 330-plus. So what in the hell is going on with this? I mean, are you guys just all went to school and, and have a trophy management program? Or like, how did you guys become so particular and disciplined on being particular?
2: Uh, a lot of things is that I have a lot of confidence that you know that you're gonna, you can always get another bull to come in. And so, uh, throughout the 20 years that we hunted together, we kind of understand that, okay, this is what they like to hear. This is what we could do to get to come in. If they don't come in, we know how to get close to them. You know? So, you have multiple ways of getting to the elk. It's not just one way. Uh, a lot of people just have one strategy going in and just like call them in. And then, if the boat doesn't come in, then you're pretty much screwed. So we have multiple ways of like, okay, if he's not answering us, we're gonna do it this way. If he's answering us, we're gonna do it this way. You know, just kind to of have a backup plan every time you go out there. And you know, we don't usually just shoot anything unless uh, we want to pack. <laughs> it's, it's you know that's uh, another exciting part too. But uh, uh, we pass the small balls only because we know there's not a big ball out there, and we have better chance we know we can get close again and so a lot of the years of experience uh, pays off you know because we're pretty confident in our calling and we know that all of our us five we can go and hike and continue to chase another bulls and uh, we know it's like certain countries that have more than just one bull
1: well i'm impressed so historically if my freezer not full if i we've ate all of my elk i generally have a policy in idaho especially where you know, I try not to shoot spikes, although I've killed spikes. I try not to shoot rags, although I've killed rags, but I usually try to shoot a five point or better. And when my freezer is empty, and I just go get another tag. Uh, I don't know if it'll always be like that in Idaho, but uh, as far as them allowing you to buy two tags. But did you guys go through that phase of just learning how to kill elk and just shooting some of those smaller bulls first? Or have you guys always just wanted six points or better? Well, how did that work? Um, when we first started out, I mean, anything that was legal, we right,
2: were gonna shoot it. And so, after about four or five years, we just got we just got really good at it. We just got really good at calling them, and they would come and we would be tagged out in like the first week or so. And the season's short, you know. I mean, I mean season's short and season long. and have to wait another year. <laughs> so we're like, uh, let's challenge ourselves. You know, we want to get a big one. Let's get a Pope Young. And then once somebody got a puppy on it, became easier to get a puppy on. And then we started to focus on understanding the big bulls. And then once we start understand big bulls, we start understanding like oh, let's let's go higher. Let's go bigger. Let's go like three thirties, three 350s, and then just aiming higher and higher every year. And you know, as, as soon as you start aiming higher, all the small bulls just start showing up like like it doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. It seems like like I'm aiming for something big, but something small always comes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. So we aim- yeah, so it's just always like that. So we just got used to it and like chasing big bulls and understanding that no matter what happens, small bulls will come in because you're chasing a big bull and they're always curious about the herd.
1: Yeah, and in that brush country, it's not, it's not a visual game. It really is a vocalization game for the most part. I mean, you're not going to glass bulls and pattern or try to intercept. If they're not talking – it's going to be a very difficult hunt for you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you generally hunt Idaho first and then you go to Montana, which has, which has a much more general season, uh, and then you hunt Montana after Idaho. How much time are you giving yourself in Idaho?
2: Um, we, we usually bounce back and forth uh, because we hunt at the uh, panhandle of the border. So we just go back and forth depending on like the rut. If, it, if we're on the Montana side, it seems like bulls are bugling earlier. Then we focus more on the Idaho side, but uh, or Idaho Montana, so which uh, vice versa. Um, we don't have a specific, but usually you, depending on the season, if Idaho's open earlier or Montana's earlier, then we just focus on the side that is earlier, and then just get a tag
1: out of the way, and then focus more on the other side, and we can go for a bigger bowl if we need to. Oh, I see. Yeah. So generally speaking, Montana opens like the first Saturday, I would say, of September, I think, and then. When does Idaho usually open? Uh, our spot is always like on the 6th every year, 6th to the 30th. I see, yeah. So you guys have the privilege of hunting that border country with a tag in each state in the pocket. I, I see what you're doing there. That's awesome. As far as hunting that country, from what I gather, you guys don't do a lot of like, maybe I'm wrong, but it looks like you guys hunt from a truck mostly and or set up a base camp and drive roads and bugle. Is that
2: right? Well, sometimes we do. Uh, most time we hike in. Uh, we do base camp and then where we know there's uh, a lot of ridges around where there's a lot of bulls in different ridges we just camp one spot and then in the morning we just hike a certain ridge and, or just bugle where we are camping and then just go from there and then just go down. Attack them from there because there's a lot of bulls in the area there's no need to like hike 5-10 miles and get the same size bull anyway. You know? Uh, you just got to use logic where um, you're going to go kill something just make it easier to pack out and then having to pack like a lot of work a lot of work
1: so what are the best dates that you've found for guys to get up into elk hunting are you guys more of that early season game Do you like the heart of the rut or kind of back into September what's been best for you guys historically speaking
2: uh, we have killed most of our bulls uh, right after there's Fifteenth, anything that during the rut, right there, right before the rut hits, that's the best time. Early season, we like to go just in case if we see like a giant bull that just happens to cross path of us and then you know, get a shot at him. But uh, we just pretty much hike, hunting and just kind of scouting and hoping you know we can find big bulls. We I mean, we see like a three twenty coming in on the weekend, a three thirty, we're gonna take him. But if it's, it's like a 280, 270, 290, we're probably just
1: gonna be like, let him walk. Dude, season's still pretty young. You guys are crazy, man. That's awesome. So, killing these bulls over 300 in Idaho ain't no joke. These are herd bulls. So, what would you say is like some of the best strategies or best practices you guys do to, to kill these herd bulls that, in my experience, they'll bugle, but they really don't want confrontation? Seems like you gotta almost corner them. It's not like they're going to just ditch their cows and come defend, even though you guys are threatening with your bugles. Wick, what, what's your play on herd bulls with cows, bulls that are older, wiser? The best strategy is get, uh, stay in shape. Um, so what
2: I mean by that is if the bull is not coming in and he's just bugling away, your job is to just keep staying right behind his butt all day long. You know, He's going to have to bet sometime, and when he does bet – he's going to get territorial and he's going to get mad and he doesn't want anything else come near his cows. So for that, you know, getting close, he's going to come in and investigate. He's gonna give you that one opportunity. And, you know, when he does give you the opportunity, you have to uh, capitalize on that. And you know, whether you get a good shot or see him or, you know, something comes around, you just got to be there right on the spot. So, you want to be in the top shape and be at the right place at the right time.
1: So you guys literally just pressure these bulls until they bed. Have you had any big bulls where they just – they'll pick their cows up and try to take off and it's just on – you guys are just hounding them again? Is that usually how it goes or like how many times do you have to push them until the, the bull finally hold his ground?
2: Uh, push him until the end – until he decides to quit. Either he quits or we quit. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. It's like either he stops bugling and that's when you know it's over. And if, if he's continuing to bugle, we're going to keep going until he stops. You know, So there's no stopping for us. Uh, if, as long as he's going, we're going to keep going. As long as he's answering, we're going to keep answering back and get as close as possible, and, which is why a lot of times it's good to have five people like us. So you have like three people following, and so it's just kind of distracting him. And so you have the two other people uh, going in front, uh, you know, distracting them so it slows the ball down, and so the other brothers can just get in front of it, and just wait and trail somewhere and where the ball's building towards them, and then hoping that they get like a ten, twenty yard shot.
1: You guys are a damn wolf pack. I think that's awesome, man. Uh, I, I I'm notoriously for hunting solo, so this is all new to me, like having that many personalities to deal with, that many people to try to make a decision with. So obviously, somebody's got to be the quarterback in your group of five. How has that worked, that process of leadership and and trying to, like, communicate and work as a team? I mean, there's a lot to be said there. Have you thought much about that? And can you shed some light on how that works for you guys? Yeah,
2: I think that we've been hunting together long enough. We kind of know each other's strategy. So, it's like, uh, we know who's, like, the strongest, the fastest hiker or the, you know, or who's going to get there before the elk well. You know, and somebody who's understanding where the else gonna go. You know, so uh, that situation we are just like, hey, you are gonna go do here? We're gonna be calling whoever's gonna be the best caller, or whoever's gonna film. They gonna agree on part of that right before. So we kind we just kind of know uh, right from the start. It's like, okay, the ball's running, you're going. <laughs> the ball's staying, you're shooting. You know, so you just gonna have a mutual agreement where. It doesn't matter. We don't have to fight for who's going to shoot because the next day you can shoot one today and tomorrow I'll shoot another one. You know, it's not like, oh, well, my season's short or your season's your You don't have enough vacations or something like that. Um, we really kind of just brothers. So we just kind of feel like whoever wants to go today, just raise their hands and shoot, you know?
1: Yep. That's cool. So you guys hunt as a team. You compliment each other. You know each other's strengths and weaknesses. How much time – does everybody have off during September to hunt?
2: You uh, pretty much have all September off. <laughs> uh, everybody pretty much have like vacations, and we have like weekends off too. We hunt together uh, uh, after work. We head out there in the woods, get for a couple hours hunting. Um, my brother, I mean, to me, sometimes I would quit my job just to go hunting a whole month, and then uh, find a new job.
1: Yeah. Know? I met somebody like me who's just a quitter I'm out oh I can't take this time off sweet I'm out I'll figure it out after hunting season that's awesome so your current employment your i t guy what like what does your day job look like man are you literally doing what I think just working on it systems or um, are you is it something exciting or is it just kind of a job and you just kind of work through like what's what do you what's your day to day like
2: I just my day to day right now. I'm just watching my daughter. But uh, before, uh, you know, I you just go. I do IT support. I've been doing that for a long time, and so just answering phones, helping people with computer issues, and networking all the stuff, uh, just to get the job done you know, pay pays the bills and get me out there in the woods. Uh, other than that, you know, when September comes and I don't get my vacation, I'm just saying
1: bye bye. You know. Yeah. Wow. So did you did you have to quit this year going into hunting season uh no not this year this year uh, i just been watching
2: my daughter for last year so just kind of scouting just kind of working on pure trophies and just getting out there and giving it my all this year and so you know trying to spend as much time with my daughter as i can before she gets a little bit older and she goes to school
1: how old is your daughter she's two red two just a couple weeks ago oh wow what's her name uh, her name's Olivia. Olivia. So she's almost, she just turned two. You're married, I assume? Uh, almost. <laughs> yeah? When's your wedding? Uh, I'm not sure yet, but we're just, we are just still talking about it, you know? So. Yeah. She'll pin you down eventually. And yeah. That's cool. So. Just don't get married in September, right?
2: I'm not going to happen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's awesome. So you guys are hunting some pretty thick brush country. It's very steep. Uh, wanted to get into because you've hunted this general area and I have a good idea where you're at fortunately we don't cross paths because I don't hunt that specific area but I have in the past in fact I think I've seen you in the mountains but it was a long time ago I'll I'll tell that story another time but my question is about wolves we talk about them sometimes on here unfortunately but the reality is there's more and more and less and less elk so I'm gonna talk about it because I really care about elk hunting. So, in your experience, you started in '98 in this brush country, uh, and they let wolves out not too far from where you're at originally, thanks Clinton administration. So, how has that process evolved? What have you seen throughout the years in the evolution of the wolf?
2: Uh, each year, just getting worse and worse. But uh you know, there's elk, still elk out there. You just gotta adapt to them, get used to it, and you know, get better and get get smarter than the uh, wolves and so I mean I n- never see a wolf so close to where I can shoot it because when you see them they just take off so there's not much you can do about it but you just have to know that you scout more and know more areas and if this place has wolves you just gotta move out and go to a different spot because you know they're gonna stay there for like a week and then they move out and then the elk's gotta get used to being calm again so just gotta study the elk, study the wolves, the situation and you know, put yourself out there to find new a loca- new spot to hunt each time you're out there. I mean, if you're out there everywhere, there's a lot of wolves, and you know there's elk, too. You just got to compete with the wolf, and, and hopefully uh, you get one that is not shy and come in and check you out.
1: Do you guys generally hear wolves every year? We do. Uh, we even see wolves come to our camp and,
2: you know, follow our tracks when we're chasing elk, too. So they're always competing with us. They're probably right around us, but we just never see them because they're so brushy. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you're in the brush country. Yeah, I've called in so many wolves I can't even tell you. Uh, I've told people that, and they don't know if they believe me. But um, I hunt similar country, but I'm seeing them because they're coming running in. or. If I'm sneaking in on a herd bull, I've bumped into wolves sneaking on the same herd many a times. I've, oh, I got endless stories. I do think I've added it up. I've seen probably over 30 wolves throughout since 2001 in North Idaho, and I think I I hunt a little bit lower country than you, and there's just higher density of elk, and that's why I think there's just higher density of wolves where I'm at, but I was real curious where you're at because uh, my dad drew a moose tag in 2009, so we were up in some of that border country, and man... We were just hiking through drainage after drainage, and it was ghost town. There just wasn't even any ungulate sign to speak of, and it was just it was just a ghost town for animals. It was super sad because it was like the most beautiful country, as you know. It's just gorgeous. It's pristine. So I didn't know if they affected your guys' numbers. So I guess we'll have to dive in. What's the general size of a herd? So say you got a good herd bull, how many cows will he have with him?
2: Typically, just no more than five. Really. And yeah, they really have more than five cows with them. Um, I mean, in Montana, I'm used to like seeing like 20, 30 cows, you know. But And so I know that there's there's a lot more bulls than more cows. So there's more chance of you to call in a bull where the mm-hmm. you know, ratios are, are a bit off. So yes. that's why you have a good chance of getting a bull in. But like I say, if you get a herd bull right now, these days,
1: you might get two now, you know. Uh,
2: they're, and they're not just calves. They're like big cows, so the calves are not there
1: yeah they just don't have they just don't make it and they're easy especially with the cougar and wolf predation on calves. so with these herd bulls only having at most five cows adult cows have you guys found that cow calling in the earlier season when these bulls are gathering has worked real well for you
2: um no we don't you typically don't do a lot of cow calls unless the bulls are into it you know so we we experiment if the bull is going to be like Interested in cow, they would just focus on the cow calls. But ninety percent of our kills are bugling, and so they they don't like to uh, hear cow calls majority of the time because wolves can imitate cow calls. So you know, they get chased out if they're gonna go sneak out and trying to find that sound, and so they don't like the cow calls. Have you actually seen wolves doing that? Uh, we done cow calls where. You know, wolves coming in or, cow, or wolves been doing, like, cow calls. When we think it's a cow and we get there, it's like a wolf. <laughs> so, you know, both both ways. So we just kind of, like, worry that, like, you know, there's a reason why the bulls are shy because we're doing cow calls. And so as soon as you, like, give it, like, another hour or two and start doing bugle, and then the bulls start bugling back. So kind of experiment with that and kind of see that, oh, yeah, the bulls are cow shy, you know.
1: Yeah, and with your less density of cows, does that mean that there's just that much more competition to breed? The bulls are just a little bit more aggressive, do you think? Yeah,
2: I mean, I mean this is part of the survival stuff. So they want to be yeah, with pathogen of offsprings on. So when you have more bulls, it's just easier to get the bull to come in. But you know, you got to know the strategy how to get them to come in too.
1: What Tell us about your YouTube channel and kind of the projects you got going there where people can find it kind of want to give you a plug and and really get people watching this stuff it's really good footage and it's t- for me especially i love it because you're hunting brush country but go ahead yeah so what pair trophies is uh, about is, is we're chasing the uh, the sound of september which is the
2: bugle of the elk and so we just want to showcase some of our hunts that we go on to and you know we want to sh- kind of share with people how how elk hunting is not that hard as you think it is it i mean it's it's hard when you first start out but if you just have the confidence and you just gotta keep going at it chasing them, uh, they will eventually um, come in sooner or later they will eventually come in and then you gotta get the opportunity. but what we're trying to do is just show our our hunts and just kind of give it to the public to see because our strategy is different and and then some of the other peoples out there.
1: Yeah, it's a great YouTube channel, pure trophies. These guys are smacking down some pretty awesome public land bulls and uh they're doing it as brothers, as a team. It's pretty cool. And uh I think you guys are doing a good job with that, man. So, what's your uh what's your take on hunting pressure and how do you guys respond to that when you got a bunch more rigs parked or you're seeing a lot more guys in your area? What do you guys do? How do you dig in?
2: I uh, just go uh, to a different spot Uh go farther. Uh typically for me is like when I when I'm parked the first if somebody comes after to me, I don't say I, I was here first or whatever. I just say, "Hey man, f- come on in, hunt with me." You know, go ahead. Which side are you going? And best man wins. <laughs> it's not like I'm here first and you can't chase his elk. You know? yeah, I don't care if somebody's there on the same mountain; they can hunt all they want. But usually, when I come later than somebody else, I don't want to pressure go in that spot. I go somewhere else because I don't want to get that. You know, I don't know, depending on the person, they could be pretty mad about it and pretty bad about it, so I'll just go somewhere else and avoid that confrontation.
1: I mean, that's just hunting anywhere you go nowadays and having backup spots. It sounds like you know this country so well, you have plan A through Z that you could check out. With the equipment topic and elk hunting, specifically brush bulls, and specifically rain, because it will rain during September at some point, guaranteed, for most most years. And when it rains in brush country, it's gonna stay wet for days and days, and you're gonna to have to pound brush. How do you guys mitigate soaked boots, um, rain gear gaiters? What are you guys doing? Because no matter what, if it rains, you're gonna be wet for the next three days, minimum. What do you guys do to mitigate that?
2: Uh, there's nothing much you can do to prevent your feet or your clothes from getting wet from that situation, but you know, those are the best times when the bulls are so we know that uh, if you don't get down there or you get wet, you're not going to see anything. So uh, you do, do have rain gears, you can have gaiters, you can have good boots. And good boots are good, but uh, everything comes, you know, the best gears out there, the, the best choice to get. But uh, it's not necessary when you're all wet, but I always recommend bringing two boots, uh, you know. One boot can be wet one day, one boot could be dry the next day, and then by the time you're switching back and forth, one's already dried up. So, I mean, your feet is very important. Your pants can be wet, your shirt can be wet, you can always stay warm because you're always consistently moving, but your feet has to be the most important piece, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, it's just hard to describe, but when that huckleberry brush is wet, it stays wet. And when you bust through it, it's like the water, no matter, even if you're wearing gaiters, will find its way to the bottom of your boots, and everything gets heavier. And Once that stuff gets wet, it's really hard to dry it out, especially if you're never at camp until it's dark or way past dark, and then you're leaving camp at dark in the morning. It's a vicious cycle, so having backups of everything, and you can kind of cycle through stuff. Base camp for you guys you guys are hunting out of your trucks and set up a base camp and then you're mobile. What is your evening routine when you get back? You guys are hungry, you're tired, you got to get ready for the next day. What's that look like for you guys?
2: Um, So, yeah, so if it's like a, the prime time or even the early season, we do a little bit different. Like the early season, we're early in the morning, uh, just till when the bowl stops and they just kind of hike around, wait, come back to the truck and then go to a new spot you now it's like we don't like to usually just wait one spot forever you know, it gets kind of boring <laughs> so yeah. and we come back to the truck just hang out so we can talk louder and joke around and don't scare the animal off and then we decide not to hang back in we drive out to a new area that we know that the bulls will come at night and it's a certain spot that they will come out and feed so we will go out there and start calling that but uh, if we get back early before dark, and you know, then we just set a camp and just start cooking and hang out, and just next day, uh, and depending on the situation, if we already spook those bulls, uh, the night before we don't go back again. Uh, we just uh, that night we drive to some new place and then just camp in the new spot. And next morning we'll hike in and chase a different bull because we don't want to leave too much scent out there or uh, educate the bulls that, that they already know that we were there the night before. So. Just don't want to know too much, and then a couple of days later, he always come back and then, then forget about us.
1: You know? Yeah, I like that idea of bouncing from spot to spot. Definitely, uh, there, that that works for me as well. And who's the cook of the crew? What's some of your guys' favorite meals in the in elk camp?
2: And so we have a pretty big uh, acre of farm uh, garden, you can say, uh, two acres. So we grow all of our own vegetables and. All that stuff and then we, we butcher our own meat and all the elk meat from previous years so we pack all that stuff out there and just eat elk steak and pork and beef you know that and then bring all the vegetables we have at the garden um bring out there but my oldest brother cooks it because he likes to cook it his way so we don't i don't have to interfere and saves me <laughs>
1: the, <Yeah.
2: laughs> to cook so he cooks all that and we kind of contribute if he's cooking uh, we set up tent or just kind of get firewood and all that stuff, man. Man, you eat and And then he's the best chef out there. So it's kind of like um, everything's pretty much fresh. Nothing was like ever like, you know, like mountain house or anything.
1: Like that Nothing's ever dried up, you know. Okay. I'm coming with you guys. That sounds awesome. Are you guys wanting to go get into the hunting industry at all? Uh, maybe one day, you know, sometimes
2: we, we're just trying to build a brand for ourselves first and then, you know do something off that with the brand you know well we don't have anything in mind yet but uh, we're working on it
1: okay i didn't know if you had ambition for that but it seemed like with the pure trophies it's got it is a brand it's a cool idea and it's some good content out there and is pure trophies on instagram
2: yes it is uh yes uh, it should be instagram.com slash pure trophies
1: okay cool well i'm i'm encouraging people to check you guys out for sure you're very blue collared you're definitely buying your tags at walmart and you're hunting some pretty rough country and uh you guys are consistently getting it done it's just it's pretty it's pretty exciting to hear what you're doing and you're having some consistency what would you say is maybe some of the biggest mistakes you made early on hunting that you guys no longer do and that maybe some of these guys listening onto my podcast should wise up and Listen to Burr on his don'ts. What are your what are your top don'ts?
2: I guess don't uh don't beagle too early. <laughs> A lot of times when we were younger, we were always like can't wait till morning light. So uh we just always bugling in the dark and next thing you know, the bulls are like like five feet in front of you in the dark and nothing you can do about it. And you know, it could be the biggest ball of your life and don't do that, don't make the mistake. Just take your time. If you know the bulls are there and just give it to daylight and you know they're not going to go anywhere, and as soon as they hear the bugle, if they decide to come, they're going to be running in. So, don't don't rush it. Just enjoy the time out there hunting, and and don't be scared of the, you know, the elk. You know, don't be scared of your strategy. Just have confidence in what you want to do out there, and, and the bulls will come in. You know?
1: Yeah, in your particular area, do you feel like your elk are traveling great distances from feeding to bedding? What is there a generalization? you could make on their pattern. well uh, yeah pretty much you, you know that where their bedding grounds
2: are or the feeding grounds are um, they don't really travel much in uh where we hunt in idaho they they usually go down the canyon they hide hiding there and they just shut up and then you won't be able to find them no more and then you'll pretty much be tired just hiking around but so they're going down the canyon and being quiet Chances are they will come back at night again they're gonna come back within that area, so you just gotta be, stay within the area hiking around another ridge or something and just kind of be them they will be there but like eastern uh middle central montana bulls are going like ten miles you know ten fifteen miles, and you're not gonna like, see them again for like a week, so or you have to keep driving around somewhere else and hopefully attack it from a different angle you might see them again it's a little bit different from different terrain to terrain so you just kind of adapt
1: to it so i guess what is the alert to that those brush country bulls when you could hunt anywhere you want in montana and idaho's a vast state it's got lots of options well what draws you back to the brush country bulls a lot because there's less people uh people
2: are not willing to go down and if they do go, they're going to go one time, and they're going to be like, I'm down with this, stuff. I'm going back to the easy country, you know. And so when I go down there, I have a good chance because I can always get closer to the bowl without them noticing me. Uh, uh, Eastern Montana, where I go to, you have to shoot like – I am not. A, I don't like to shoot far, so I'm not a guy who likes to shoot past 40 yards, so I want to keep, get as close as I can to the bull and challenge myself see if I can get within 10 or 15-yard shot. So, but – if it doesn't happen, then I would take my chances at 30 yard, you know, 30, 40. So oh. it's just a challenge for me to get close as I can to the bull and less hunters out there.
1: Yeah, well, I, you're going to get close shots in uh, Idaho, especially northern and, and western Montana. That's pretty cool. I think that uh, once you get a bull down and you have five guys, I'm curious to know how that works. Like, how do you guys like to break down an elk when you got four or five guys and uh, – everyone's willing to throw a load on
2: yeah i mean we pretty much pack everything out of the bowl uh nothing pretty much except for the grass and the, all that stuff but you know we that's a different recipe that we don't use anymore <laughs> back in, it's left back in the house but like everything that's for intestines livers all the organs we cut up the all that stuff and then we pack it out Nothing left, ribs. you take all the ribs, the only thing that's left behind is just pretty much the backbone, I guess, the other legs of bones that we don't need eat. So uh, everything pretty much, you know, whoever wants to cut it, they can just cut it out fast. And the other people just can just kind of hold help out, hold bags or, you know, do some work to be, get the stomach out early. And somebody can start uh, cleaning up the stomach and put it in the bag and pack it all out.
1: That's right, folks. You heard it here first. Bert Yang and his squad of monks take everything. So, dude, what are you doing with okay, I get liver, I get heart. What do you guys do with the stomach, the intestines? what do you what kind of what are you preparing with that?
2: Okay, so the stomach is good for uh, we cut it we come back, we filter it, clean out real good, and then we wash it, and uh, we slice the stomachs so out ready to thin slices and then we get a little bit of a back strap or tendon line somewhere, we just cut we kind of very thin to almost like, almost like a ground style. And then because you can cook that, either you eat it raw, you can kind of put hot water in it and just kind of cook it like that. But we most of the time cook it raw, like eat it, and put like mint, uh, cilantro, onions, and filter it out. I mean, pretty much just put all that stuff together and mix it and then put lime into it so that kills kind of the, the bacterias. That's, that's one dish for the raw stuff. And then the intestines is the one we filter on the pot where you want to get all the juice, the, the poop juice, you can call it, and get, get rid of that. And then so you get all these nice clean juice that makes the um, meat. You cook it, it tastes taste really more like bitter. Yeah.
1: Wow, my so, mind's blown right now if you can't tell. <laughs> so, so, one of these times, I will, I will
2: make a little video of how to make it. I'm going to cook it on my channel, so <laughs>
1: follow on. Yeah. Definitely should. I would totally advise that. So what's your guys' favorite part of the elk to eat in camp, like your reward meat, especially if one guy just tagged out and the four of you still have tags and you're in there for the long? What do you guys do for a, a reward meal? And then what? how do you handle your meat when you got multiple guys still hunting?
2: Well, usually the person who kills it takes it home. Okay. Because it's not too far. It's only a couple of hours, two, three hours drive. So, I mean, they can just take it home. We don't have, like, a freezer or anything to pick out there. Because most of the time, sometimes it's, like, hot, 70 degrees. And we don't want to just hang it out there. and ruin it. And so whoever shoots it, usually would we'll be driving home. And then they can always come back the next day and know where we are.
1: Okay. And then as far as uh, do you guys have a cut of meat that you guys eat in camp?
2: Yeah, we, we just cut whatever like the the back straps would be good. Uh, we just take keep one and just kind of cook for a couple of days. Like uh, steak, uh, pretty much as the easiest, fastest way to do it. Um, cut it up and then just or the boil or whatever you want to do with
1: it. And then you know, with the vegetables that we have, just eat it on camp and just celebrate it. And you know, we know where you guys will be next year. You'll be back at it, Idaho, Montana. Two tags in your pocket filming capturing for pure trophies and and growing your brand and working hard man so let's end with uh the fitness that you alluded to you said you got to be in shape to pressure bulls and chase bugles what do you guys do year round to stay ready for elk hunting um we hike all the time so a lot a lot of hiking doing a lot of leg workout um you know
2: that's that's the most important piece you can you can have an upper body but your your body your bottom body low legs doesn't <laughs> work you're not gonna be able to get anywhere up the mountain so um we were born all, um, just luckily all my brothers and I we really like hiking and so we were came from Laos and we grew up in where we were always hiking all the time together one place to the other so we got used to that and then when we came here we were just pretty much the same thing so my parents just made us hike all the time so it's normal for us so uh, take your kids, take your family you know, out there hiking all the time just to stay in shape because, you know, you got snow and all that stuff here. So you got to worry about that it's a little bit different atmosphere, but
1: you just got to push yourself out there and keep yourself in shape. So you in the wintertime when you don't have it's especially living in western Montana, it's cold. What do you do? What's your go to workouts?
2: Just stay home. Just gonna do just squats. Um, with my daughter on my back, just do squats and something like that, you know, or hit the gym and just I'm um, trying to stay in good shape as you can because you don't want to be
1: out of shape, and there's a lot of hard work to get back into shape. So. No doubt. So have you ever thought about trying that uh, CrossFit stuff that uh, these crazy guys do? Yeah, I
2: mean, I, I love to. I mean, anything that's an activity, getting your body into shape, I'm, I'm, I'm always up for it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, we're we're at our hour mark. Covered some country. I want people to follow you and and learn more about your guys' style. We told them where to reach you guys. What's your parting advice for rookie elk hunters trying to seal the deal on an elk in 2019? Uh don't give up. Just keep chasing them until the elk give up,
2: and then you're gonna likely you're gonna get it, or you know, pretty much a good chance you're gonna get it if you don't give up
1: man well it's been good talking to you don't quite hang up i'll chat with you afterwards but everybody this is bird yang and he's part of pure trophies he's out of missoula montana and he's got an awesome story he's a great elk killer and uh i really appreciate you coming on man yeah thank you dan awesome all right we'll catch you guys on the next one